while you've got your bulletins out, there is one more thing in the bulletin, and I want you to take it out right now. Last week, Pastor Drew introduced us to a new sermon series that he set up and laid the foundation for last week, and every single week of this sermon series, there will be a new postcard in your bulletin. So this postcard is pertinent to this sermon today. This artwork is unique artwork. It was done for Bel Air Press. Drew contacted Scott the painter. He's a man named Scott Erickson, but on Instagram, if you want to see any of his other work, he's known as Scott the painter. But we want you to take this home with you. We would love for you to come every week of this series and collect the whole set. We want you to be able to use these. These are very evocative images. And we believe that as you ruminate on the sermon each and every week, that these might help you process what the Spirit is stirring in you. So take it home. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on your mirror. Make sure that you, um, that you let the Holy Spirit continue to speak in you, and this will be a reminder. And if you flip it over, you will see in small font, but it's there, um, there are three questions. And our challenge to you in this whole sermon series is to ask you if you would step out where your faith is without borders, and would you have a conversation with someone this week who you're not sitting in church with right now? Would you say, hey, my church is having a, uh, a sermon series on Exodus. Exodus, it's part of the Christian Bible. It's part of the Jewish Pentateuch. It's part of the uh, Islamic Quran. And that is recorded in all of the major world religions. It's a wide umbrella that you can step into and say, you know, there's some pretty amazing things that are brought up. And we have three questions to help prompt you to start a conversation. You can use them if you like, or you can find your own. But we want to challenge you. Would you have a conversation? And would that conversation get so good, so long, so heated, so powerful, so in-depth that you have to say, you know what, you have to come to church with me next week? Because I can't answer your questions anymore. I don't know the answers to that, but my pastor does, hopefully. So invite people. Use this as an opportunity to say, won't you come to church with me, and let's be in this study of one of the most significant events in world history. So, just as the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central event in the New Testament, so Exodus is the central event in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. It is the second book of the Pentateuch. It is the hub around which Jewish theology organizes itself, and it is the story by which the people of Jewish faith around the world identify themselves. Every year at Passover, commanded by God never to forget, Jewish families repeat the story of the Exodus generation to generation to generation, they will never forget how this shaped them as a people. It's history. It's not a story. It's history that is taught to children. It's history that is treasured in the hearts of people around the world. Much of Jewish thought centers around this one grandiose, miraculous, redeeming act of God. 
And so it is that in our Judeo-Christian theology, this is central for us as well. The exodus that we see led by Moses in the Hebrew Scriptures is a key that helps us understand the second exodus that is led by Jesus. Now, from the New Testament on, that Jesus actually comes as a second Moses, leading all of humanity who place their faith in Him out of bondage, out of oppression, and into true freedom. This that we have here in Exodus gives us a, a paradigm to enter into and understand our Christian faith much more deeply, and it helps us know, as Pastor Drew has said and will say again, that God, full of grace and truth, present in every moment, will reclaim us, will rename us, will repurpose us for God's glory. <laughs> Amen. But before we enter into the story of redemption, we have to enter into a story of suffering. It's a story of injustice. It's a story of violence and of oppression. We have to go into some difficult and horrible things if we are going to listen to God's Word today. You see, in this first part of Exodus, God and Scripture vividly paint a picture of a people who need a Savior. These are people who are so oppressed so immersed in suffering, so beyond the reach of any human hand that there is no hope unless it is divinely orchestrated and initiated by God Himself. And that is the place where we pick up the Exodus story today. If you would like to follow along as I read, turn to page 43 in your pew Bible. It's there in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to take this. I'm going to ask you to underline and highlight some places. So if you need it, take it. Get out your own Bible if you have it. If you're on your iPhone, get ready to highlight. We are going to spend a lot of time in Exodus in the next few weeks and, and even into next year, and so we are going to take time really looking verse by verse at what Scripture has to say. So listen as I read the Word of the Lord, beginning in Exodus 1, uh, verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They, the Israelites, they built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. And now I'm going to skip over to the very last few verses of chapter 2, reading from chapter uh, 2, beginning in verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you'll notice that we skipped right over the birth of Moses and just flew right over that. It's not because it's inconsequential. It's because it's so consequential that Moses is going to get his very own dedicated sermon next week. So consider this a birth announcement. Moses is arriving next week. You all are invited. Come back to celebrate the birth of Moses. Today we're going to focus almost exclusively on the suffering of the Israelites in Egypt. It was roughly 34 centuries ago. And so as we look at this suffering that happened so long ago, so easy to ask, so what's that mean to me? Hopefully we'll start to recognize what it means to us today. As we embark on this journey together, I would love for you to keep one thing in mind, and that is this. Sometimes we need to see what God is keeping us from in order to recognize what God is keeping us for. Sometimes we need to see what God is keeping us from in order to recognize what God is keeping us for. And so I'm going to suggest to you that there are three things that God kept the Hebrew people from in the middle of their suffering, in the middle of their oppression, three things that He kept them from in order to rename, reclaim, and repurpose this chapter in their history. The first thing that God kept them from was being exterminated. You see, this perspective can only come years decades, sometimes centuries after the event itself. It's the kind of perspective that we are finally starting to get on the Holocaust, the kind of perspective that we are finally starting to see on the Armenian genocide, the kind of perspective that we may not have yet even begun to realize with the Rwandan genocide. It's the perspective that comes with time and with distance that cuts us to our souls so that we can say, God, may that never happen again. 
It's the kind of thing that's not of much use for people when they're in the middle of it. It's the look back that lets us see that if the full force of the violence, of the hatred, of the oppression had been unleashed, this is what could have happened. You see, as we begin here in Exodus, we are not just entering a story about slavery. We are entering a story about the attempted genocide of a people. It all begins with Pharaoh instilling fear in his people. Look at chapter 8, this new king who did not know Joseph. He takes notice that the Israelites are more numerous than they are, that they've got the best part of the land. And so he says, we need to do something about this because, God forbid, if there's a war, they're not going to fight with us. They're going to fight against us. Where did that come from? Years and years later, there were alliances made between the Israel nation and the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh wanted to use this tactic to stir up fear in his people so that as a concerted effort, they would turn against this demographic. And so it is that, uh, that the response to that fear being incited is that there is forced labor put upon the Hebrews. Now, it's in Genesis 47, way back in Genesis, 430 years earlier when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Jacob and his son Joseph were alive, when Joseph was taken to Egypt against his well, thrown in a hole by his brothers and taken them, but that was God's purpose and plan already beginning to unfold. And so it is that when there was famine in the land of Israel and Jacob and his other sons had nothing to eat, they'd travel to Egypt hoping for mercy and grace. And it's here that we have this scene where Pharaoh is talking to, uh, to all the brothers of Joseph, and that they don't know that Joseph is there with them. And Pharaoh says to the brothers of Joseph, what is your occupation? And they say to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our ancestors were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to reside as aliens in the land, for there is no pasture for their servants' flocks, because the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And Pharaoh, because he loves Joseph 430 years ago, that Pharaoh loved Joseph, he said, settle your father and your brothers into this land. The land of Egypt is before you. Give them the best part of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And so we learn there in Genesis that what the work, what the vocation of the Hebrew people was in Egypt is they were, they were shepherds. They had livestock. This was the work of their hand. This is how they fed their families. And so when the Egyptians said, we are going to put you into forced labor to build cities in the middle of a desert, this began a plan of extermination. It doesn't jump out like that at the very beginning, but Pharaoh knew this. You see, there's a couple of the things that start happening. First, you crush the spirit of a people when you take their work away from them. When you don't let them see any return to what they do every day, day in and day out, if you want to crush the spirit of a people, take their work away. And these men, 
They were on site. They didn't get to return home. If you have any knowledge of the building of the railroad or the Alaskan pipeline, these men were at that site. They didn't get to go home to their wives every night. And so Pharaoh knew that just by the process of men and women, husbands and wives, not spending as much time together, there wouldn't be as many childbirths. This would begin to thin out the population of the Hebrews. And he knew there wouldn't be much food. You see, these were shepherds. They lived off the land. They lived off of what they raised. They fed their family through the work of their hands. When Pharaoh took that work away, he took away how they fed their children. And so, there would naturally be a thinning out of the Hebrew population through starvation. Pharaoh knew that this is what he was beginning. You see, the crazy thing is, though, is that the more the Egyptians waited for the tactics to take effect, the more that they had these things going on, the more the Israelites multiplied. It says in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They increased in number. Sometimes if you are intent on killing something and it doesn't die, it has the gall not to die, you become more focused on trying to kill it. I swatted a fly three times last night, and it would not go down. That thing kept coming back to life. And every time it got back up, I swatted it again, and my determination to get it out of my sight was extreme. Thank God this is the only way that I know that this is true. Pharaoh was determined to kill the Hebrews, but God was determined to have them flourish. And so, against all earthly reason, the Israelites multiplied at this time. But we see Pharaoh's response as we read on in Scripture, the words ruthless, bitter, hard start to describe the Israelite experience at this time. Ruthless is mentioned a second time. Now, my friends, very few of us in this room, very few of you listening online, by the grace of God, will ever use these adjectives in your own life. Thank God. Very few of us know the horror that they are trying to capture in the words ruthless, bitter, and hard. And so it is that we can read these words, we can, we can study and try and understand what happened, we can sympathize, but we will never know the depth of the suffering unless we have been in it ourselves. And so these words actually take on a sacredness, sacred in that they point to a reality that we can never know. We only know that it is a reality held in the Word of God. And so we have to agree with God that this was a horror, that these were atrocities in ways that we will never know. If you are in the midst of suffering, 
wondering every day if your children will live, if you will live, what brutality will be visited against you. It is hard to recognize the significance of surviving, but that is significant. There are Holocaust survivors that say it is significant that I survived. The first thing that God did for His people is He kept them from perishing. Where there is life, there is hope. And Jesus actually Himself reframed that expression. Where there is Jesus, there is hope, because Jesus teaches us that even when there is death, there is still a word beyond that. And so may we rest in that, that God saves His people. The second thing that I see God keeping His people from in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their oppression, God kept them from becoming inhuman as a result of their brutality, the, the brutal things that were being visited upon them. God kept them human. When the slow roll of keeping men out of their work, of starving their families, of thinning out the population didn't work, Pharaoh had to take a different approach, and so he tried to kill the Israelites from within their own ranks. A very insidious idea, a very sick idea. And so he called two Hebrew midwives to him, summoned them, and gave them a command. You women, you midwives who are present when every Hebrew woman is having her child, you who are present at the birth stool, you're the first to know whether or not it's a boy or a girl. If it's a boy, kill it. This is a command. Here's the beauty that springs out of this ugly, ugly story. And I want you to underline it. I want you to highlight it. Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, but the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God. You see, the only currency that Pharaoh had to market in was fear. He didn't sweeten the deal for the midwives of, hey, there's a little something extra in this for you if you do what I tell you. The only thing that he had was, I won't kill you if you do what I tell you. And Obviously, the reverse is true. If you don't do what I command you to do, you are as good as dead. There is a different kind of fear when it says the midwives feared God. It's the polar opposite of how Pharaoh wanted to motivate these women to act. It's in Proverbs 9.10 that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is first recognizing that He is present, that He's here, that He sees. It is knowing Him as Creator. It is submitting to His authority over any other thing in this world, in the very present circumstances of their affliction, of their slavery. They had more awareness of God's presence, of God's power than they did of Pharaoh's. And that is a miracle. That is a miracle of faith. You see, there's this weird and wacky thing in human nature 
something that can tempt us to believe that if someone treats us monstrously, that it's okay if we turn into monsters too. Someone hits us, we get permission to hit back. Someone insults us, we have permission to hit back. It's a cycle of violence, of hatred. It can become something that's ethnic cleansing. It can perpetuate generation after generation of absolute mayhem, and the enemy loves this. There is a reason that God says, vengeance is mine, not yours. Vengeance is mine. God wants to keep us human. God does not want us to become like those who attack us or humiliate us. God does not want us to become bullies. God wants us to stay human. And so these women made a profound choice not to give in to this human impulse. They did not give in to fear. They did not give in to the idea of personal gain, even when personal gain was their own life. The fear of God, the presence of God in the midst of this suffering kept them human. They did not become baby killers. I mean, let's think about this. If they had responded to Pharaoh's command as he wanted them to, maybe the first baby would have been really hard, really hard. But then the second baby maybe got a little easier, and perhaps the third baby a little easier. And, and by the time there's so much blood on their hands that they don't even see their own skin anymore, maybe they didn't even remember that they ever felt bad about it in the first place. Do you know there are chapters of human history that are felt and filled with that very indifference? If it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. Once you kill the first baby, what, what stops you from killing again? When does your conscience check, catch up with you? You see, we all think that Exodus started with Moses and a burning bush. That is a, a burning bush, by the way. That's not a fall leaf. <laughs> Whenever we think of, think of Exodus, we think that it started with Moses turning aside and, and looking at this bush that burned, but the Exodus event did not start with Moses. The Exodus event started with two Hebrew women slaves, and their names in verse 15 are Shifra and Pua. And I want you to highlight those. I want you to underline those. These women are so significant that they are the first people mentioned other than Jacob and his sons here in Exodus as we begin. These women are so significant that in the first five chapters of Exodus, they are the only people mentioned by name other than the families of Jacob and Moses. These women have their names recorded in Holy Scripture because they are meant to be remembered as heroines of faith. Shifra and Pua said no to participating in the problem. No is a powerful word. So say it with me. Let's practice Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua. Let's tell our kids about these ladies. Let's tell our grandkids about these ladies. How many of you have memorized these names before? Anybody? 
Okay, Pastor Care had, so she wins today. How many of you would like to memorize these names as of today? Shifra and Pua. Men, I need to see your hands. Come on now. Moses would not have been born if it were not for Shifra and Pua. S&P, remember, S&P, right? Can we have another index? Can we have an index of courage, of moral fortitude? Can we have an index that measures something that actually matters? You see, we don't know in Scripture when, they, when Pharaoh called them in, we don't know if they actually lied outright. If they did, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my theologian from World War II, said, do you know that it is better to lie than to give the truth to someone who does not deserve it? If that person intends to kill your child because you told them the truth, then lie for all you're worth. They might have lied. They might have gone to all the pregnant women in Israel and said, you know, my sister, don't call us when it's time for you to give birth. Take our word for us. You are going to be better off with us, not there. And so it actually may be that all of the women in of the Hebrew nation, that all the Hebrew women may actually be heroines of faith. These women may have said, I am going to go into childbirth, the anxiety of it, the fear of it, the potential life-threatening nature of giving birth to a child without a midwife there. I am going to do that to give my baby boy a chance to live. No wonder Jewish mothers are so awesome. (laughs) There is an amazing history of Jewish mothers giving themselves for the life of their children. And because Shifra and Pua did not take the lives of other people's children, get this, look at verse 21. Because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. This is so easy to skip over this detail in the midst of all this horror. He gave them families, which means they did not have families before this began. Midwives, they've got to love babies, right? They've got to love pregnant women. Shifra and Pua had no personal experience of either. And this in a culture where having a child, if you are a woman, was your very identity not having children of their own, not having a family of their own, would have been hard and bitter for Shifra and Pua, even if they had not been enslaved in Egypt. It would have been a curse and a disgrace. But because they honored God, God gave them families. Have you ever wanted something so much, wanted it with all your heart, You know that it's a good thing. It's a blessing from God. Have you ever wanted it so much and you haven't gotten it, but other people do? And it hardens your heart. You know what I mean? It makes you feel a little bitter toward God, toward that person, the one that has and you have not. Resentment can step into this place. There can be pain that fills us. You can actually feel justified in being angry. You can actually feel justified in having a little bit of hatred toward this person who is your sister. 
Can you imagine what the course of history would have looked like if Shifra and Pua had let the enemy exploit their pain? We would be living in a different world right now. They did not let their pain take them captive. They may have been enslaved to Pharaoh, but they were not going to be enslaved by something that they had the attitude, they had their own ability to change. They were free in being able to make a healthy choice, free in being able to make a moral choice. There was nothing that demanded that they had to cross that line. And so God kept Shifra and Pua from making things worse for their people. He kept them from taking the easy way out. He kept them from making a mistake, the mistake of killing a baby, a mistake that they would never forget and never outlive. He kept them from this. And in His divine and holy presence, in the life-giving presence, He kept these women from making an inhuman choice, and He held them as women who were created in His image. They did not lose the image of God in them. Can we stand in this world the way Shifra and Pua stood in their world? Pharaoh carried out his plan his plan to exterminate the baby boys of the Hebrews. He just had to do it with his own people because the Hebrews wouldn't do it. You'll see in verse 22 that Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. You see, when the Hebrews didn't do it, he just had to make it national policy so that his people would do it. Except he had to take the dirtiness, the dirty work, out of it a little bit. If Shifra and Pua had done this, their hands would have been bloody. It would have been at the point of the birth stool. But when it went public, when it became a national program, Pharaoh said, whenever you see a Hebrew baby, just pick it up and toss it into the river and just look the other way, just walk away. I mean, you have plausible deniability. You don't know what happened to the baby in the river. You didn't kill the baby. Your hands aren't dirty. And because the Egyptians believed that the Nile was actually one of the gods that they served, Pharaoh had the double whammy ability of making this not only a national duty, but a religious ceremony. Oh, you're going to be doing great. You're going to love, the God's going to be so pleased, the God of the Nile, when you throw that baby in there. How horrendous is Satan? How horrendous is the lie that people are deceived with? We need to discern. We need to discern the voices among us. And so not only did God keep the Hebrews from being exterminated, not only did God keep them from making inhuman choices, but lastly, I see that God kept the Hebrews from giving up. He kept them from giving up. When we jump over to the last few verses of chapter 2, it says that the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. And I want you to underline or highlight that verse their cry for help 
rose up to God. This, my friends, is prayer. That's all there is to it. For any of you that are in circumstances and you are thinking, I don't know how to pray. I don't have the right words. I don't know how to get God's attention. You have God's attention. God loves you. And so let your cries rise up. Do you know that prayer is the antidote that will keep you from giving up in your circumstances? When you seek God's mind in your circumstances, your prayers, your desire to surrender yourself to God's will, to God's voice, that will be the antidote for giving up. Do you know how hard it can be for strong people to pray? The Israelites were a strong and a proud people. It was in Genesis 12 that God told Abraham that he would bless him, and through him all the other nations of the earth would be blessed. God made Israel a role model so that every other person on earth could come to know God. Do you know how hard it is for a role model to give up the role and just be human? God had to bring Israelites, the Hebrews, into a deep humility and a deep knowledge of their utter dependence on God. You see, he wanted to bring them out of their dependence on their harsh taskmasters, out of their bondage. But it wasn't so they could do anything. He wanted them to recognize their dependence on him. It was in this need, in this utter dependence on God's grace, on God's promise that was carried out from generation to generation to generation. It's here that the Abrahamic promise, the God that I will bless you and you will be, be more numerous than all the sand on the seashore, all the stars in the sky, this is no longer known as the Abrahamic promise from this point in Scripture. It's the promise given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And that lets us know that from generation to generation, this promise lives. This promise is forever. God will keep His promise. This is in Holy Scripture, and if God is for you, who can be against you? God kept Israel from things they probably couldn't see, and it might not have mattered to them even if they could, but God did it anyway. With all the things that God kept Israel from, what did He keep them for? What did God keep Israel for? Most of us know the answer. God kept Israel through these circumstances, through their oppression, through their suffering for His purpose. He had no intention that they would perish in Egypt. God had a plan that He was enacting. The enemy loves to cause us to think that our suffering is meaningless. That is the enemy's voice in your head that says, this means nothing. No one sees. No one notices. That is a lie. God sees. There is nothing under heaven. There is nothing on earth that is without meaning because God sees it. God is a God who inhabits our suffering. 
That is who he revealed himself to be. Jesus on the cross is a God who suffers with us. Jesus is a man acquainted with grief. He's acquainted with your grief. He is acquainted with your suffering. Your cries are not hitting deaf ears. In Jesus Christ, God is able to rename, reclaim, and repurpose your suffering for a purpose that is His. You might not see it right away. You might not see it in your lifetime. That doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean it's not there. God is constantly at work. God's purpose of redeeming humanity through Jesus Christ is happening whether we see it or not, whether we experience it, whether we acknowledge it, it is happening. God's Word go, goes forth and it returns to Him with His intention. It does not return to Him empty. Nothing stops the Word of the Lord from achieving its purpose. Suffering goes on in this world. As much as we get better, we also get worse. Suffering is unmitigated in this world. There are more human beings trafficked in slavery right now in this world than at any other time in human history, and yet God is still at work. Fear and lawlessness are rampant in our world, and yet God is still at work. The enemy wants you to believe that your circumstances are who you are, and that that's all there will ever be, that this moment of now is a moment that's forever. That's what the enemy wants you to think. God is making all things new. God is making you new. God is making your circumstances new. My friends, if you are in a situation right now, if you find yourselves in suffering, if you are watching online and you are too sick, too broken, too poor, too whatever to get here to be with us, God sees you. If you are in a situation that is enslaving you, killing you, causing you fear, it's tempting you, God sees and He cares. God is working right now all things together for good for those who love Him and for those who are called according to His purpose. Set your hearts on God. Set your hearts on Him. Choose who you will be in these circumstances. Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor, said that there is one freedom that can never be taken away from human beings. People can beat you, they can humiliate you, they can kill you, but there is one freedom that can never be taken away from a human soul, and that is the freedom to choose how we live, to choose how we suffer, to choose how we hope, and that is a choice that is made here in these pages of Exodus. You see, it's not by accident that we end this sermon today looking at the prayers of the Israelites rising up. God wants us to be a praying people. God is keeping us in His intention for His purpose in our prayers. Don't suffer alone. Come. Receive prayer.
let your prayers rise to God. And so it is that we had to go through these verses today. These verses that somehow we wish just weren't there that talk about the killing of innocent babies. We had to go through these verses on suffering in order to tee up what's coming next. If this is your first day here at Bellard Church, I hope you'll come back. It's not this heavy every week. You see, something is about to change in these verses of Scripture. Something is about to change for the Hebrew people. Something is about to change for Shifra and Pua. Something is about to change for you and for me. God is constantly on the move today. I will not be silent. If you walk away today and you think, oh, I'm not going to go back. I'm discouraged. All I heard was about suffering. You will walk away with the distorted message of the gospel. You will not walk away with the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing in your life. And so will you determine to come back? Will you determine to hear what's next? Will you determine to invite somebody who desperately needs to hear that God sees them and cares about them and is moving in their circumstances? Things are about to change. Can we wait as the people of God, wait in the hope of our Savior who comes for us again? Can we wait for what is coming? Let's pray. Holy God, how we thank you for the words of Scripture. How we thank you for men and women throughout the ages who were scribes, who recorded who spoke words of prophecy, who listened to your voice and wrote it down so that others like us can be here today listening to your voice in our time. God, I pray that you would move in these words in our time. God, would you help us see who we are? Would you help us move from the sidelines into being part of the solution. God, we thank you so much for the nation of Israel. We thank you so much for our Jewish brothers and sisters, for their model to us, for their faith. We thank you that as our Savior died on the cross, that he knew himself to be a son of Israel a child saved by the faith of Shifra and Pua. We thank you, God, that there is not one word of Scripture. Your word goes forth. <laughs> and may all of God's people say amen. Amen.